Hi, I'm Professor George Mahalko, director of My Bloody Valentine, and you're listening to the Faculty of Horror podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And you are listening to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. And today it's a little bit fuller in the room, Org Vault. We are joined, as we said last episode, by Paul Korup, founder of Exploitation, co-curator of the Black Museum Lecture Series alongside Andrea, columnist for Rue Morgue, all-around writer for Rue Morgue, and managing editor of Spectacular Optical. How are you, Paul? I'm tired already talking about you. I'm tired of listening. I'm great. Thank you for having me on the show. I mean, it's really uh, um, exciting to be here. I know you guys don't have many guests, so I'm quite honored to uh, to be part of it. Well, as they say, we, we only go after people with very special and specific skill sets. And I can't think of a better topic to have you on for because Andrew and I have talked about having you on quite a lot. And it's to talk about David Cronenberg, the Canadian auteur, baron of blood, all-around Canadian horror guru. That's right. We wanted to talk about Cronenberg. We wanted to talk about Canadian horror. So who better to have on than Paul Canuxploitation Corrup? And we let Paul decide what movie we were going to focus on. And to that end, Paul picked Shivers. Why did you pick this film? Uh, Shivers has always been my favorite David Cronenberg film. You know, it's not one of maybe his best films, but as his first film, it kind of has a raw energy to it that I feel a lot of his later films don't quite achieve. And and I just think it's also one of his smartest films, even though the filmmaking quality of it is not quite as good as he started to get later on. It really has a lot of smart, interesting ideas stuffed into this kind of low-budget horror framework. Yeah, and I hadn't seen this film before we had to watch it for the podcast. And the second I started watching it, I was so happy that you picked it because this is the perfect time to talk about shivers. We are in the second grip of Trudeau mania in Canada. We just had these big elections here in this country and we elected a new prime minister and that's Justin Trudeau. And he's kind of Canadian political royalty. His father was Pierre Elliott Trudeau and he was this big kind of rock star politician in the late 60s through 70s. And, you know, I see a lot of similarities of what was going on back then and right now. So it's a wonderful time to be Canadian, guys. It had been a long time since I'd seen Shivers. I saw it way, way back. And if you watch a lot of Cronenberg in a small amount of time, they kind of bleed together, pun intended. Um, It's not my favorite Cronenberg film. I think that mantle would have to go to The Fly, even though I recognize that The Fly is probably one of the most removed from the very Cronenbergian aspects of his filmmaking, the body horror, the gooey stuff that he's so great and so known for, like to the point that, I don't know if you guys saw that Rick and Morty episode where there's all these creatures and they were actually referring to them as Cronenbergs. And everything's Cronenberging everywhere and Cronenberg this and Cronenberg that. Boy, Morty, I really Cronenberg the world up, didn't I? You got a whole planet of Cronenbergs walking around down there, Morty. So he's actually become his own adjective, and it all started out with shivers, which is what we're going to talk about today. If you think you're not afraid of the dark, if you think you have a strong stomach, if you feel nothing can shock you, if you say you don't scare easily, if you believe you've seen everything, then prepare yourself for a motion picture that takes you beyond fear, beyond your wildest nightmares, and brings you face to face with terror, beyond the power of priest or science to exercise. What are they? Raging demons from another world? Bloodthirsty creatures that must be killed? or incarnations of absolute evil. They possess men, women, and children, and drive them to acts of unbelievable horror. No one is safe from them. No power on earth can stop them. The only escape is death. doesn't make you scream and squirm, you'd better see a psychiatrist. Quick. 
the film opens up with footage of what appears to be an advertisement for an apartment building, but it's not just an apartment building. The Starliner building is located on an island and offers its residents everything they could need on premises, more like a hotel or a resort. There's the usual spa and restaurant services, but also shopping, dry cleaning, and, handy, a medical and dental clinic. We meet a young couple getting a tour of the building and its amenities, but the scene is undercut with images of an older man attacking and eventually strangling a young woman. Once he's killed her, he lays her on a table, tapes her mouth shut, cuts her open with a scalpel, and pours acid into her abdomen before slashing his own throat. When the police arrive to investigate, they discover that the man, an academic named Emile Hobbs, was having a sexual affair with the victim, his former student named Annabelle. It looks like a crime of passion, albeit a really morbid and suspicious one, so the cops leave it alone, but not before consulting with the Starliner's resident doctor, Roger St. Luke. Meanwhile, another resident of the Starliner by the name of Nick Tudor was also messing around with his nubile neighbor upstairs, and he's been experiencing a weird hemorrhaging in his own abdomen, causing him crippling pain, bleeding from his mouth, and these weird lumps in his stomach that he likes to talk to. On the day of the murder, he wretches up a bunch of creatures, which, I'm sorry, I can only really describe them as dick-shaped turds. (laughs) That's what they are. Dick-shaped turds, who manage to navigate the Starliner's drains, hallways, and garbage chutes to attack and infect the other residents. Now, Dr. St. Luke and his girlfriend, Nurse Forsyth, are treating all these residents with weird abdominal tumors, but he doesn't connect it to Dr. Hobbs until he gets a call from Rollo Linsky, who is Hobbs' business-slash-research partner. Now, apparently Dr. Hobbs was working on creating a special breed of parasite that would enter its host's body, latch onto an infected organ, and start to mimic its function such that it could essentially replace it. Linsky later reveals that Hobbes also had a weird philosophical fascination with people being too removed from their nature and that he had exposed Annabelle to another highly contagious strain of this parasite, one that would act as, quote, venereal disease and aphrodisiac to, quote, turn the world into one beautiful orgy. That's not what happens, of course, and by nightfall, the Starliner is complete pandemonium. Dr. St. Luke and Nurse Forsyth fight off the horny residents who are trying to simultaneously attack them, molest them, and run them over with their car. And then when Nurse Forsyth reveals her infection, it's down to Dr. St. Luke who finally succumbs to the mob after he falls into a swimming pool. The film closes with a shot of Dr. St. Luke leading a row of cars off the island, presumably to infect the greater population of the rest of Montreal. So watching this film for me, it was a very interesting thing because I used to live in Montreal. I grew up there from when I was about six to ten years old, and then I went back to Montreal to do my undergrad, and I lived there for five years in my early 20s. And Montreal is a very interesting city. It's known kind of within Canada as this big party city, this big drinking city. A lot of genre fans and people who work in the industry will know it for the big Fantasia Film Festival. So it's got this really fun atmosphere, but there is a lot of political tension in it, not just because of the language barriers, but also because of the unrest that resides within Quebec, and not just because of Celine Dion's singing. Now, what really struck me is my dad, who I mentioned before on this podcast, he's British and he's a filmmaker, and he actually emigrated to Canada in the late 60s, and he was brought over by the National Film Board of Canada. So he moved to Montreal with his then-wife, and they were living in a part of Montreal. It was a little rough, and they were a little nervous, so they actually wound up moving to Nuns Island in 1969-1970, and that is where Shivers is shot. And that's kind of the idea of Shivers is Nuns Island is a real place in Montreal. It's a small island just kind of in the St. Lawrence River. And there's a connecting bridge that goes into the city. So my dad would commute back and forth, but it was essentially its own little island. So it was a really interesting way for me to interact with this kind of part of my father's history that... I really had no ties to. And I asked my dad about living there. This film was shot in 1974, released in 1975. So 
right around the time my dad was living there. And I was like, what was it like to live on Nuns Island? And he was like, it was great. We had everything we needed. It was safe. It was a nice community. The only time it was scary was I have a half-sister, and she had a lot of illnesses as a child. And so it got really scary when they couldn't get the right doctor to attend to her. So there was that sense of isolation. But also he mentioned that he was working with film crews at this time. And the second he said to a Quebecois worker that, oh, I live on Nuns Island, they would almost immediately stop talking to him because it's an Anglophone community, pretty much. I had no idea that Nuns Island was a real place. I thought actually the name Nuns Island had something to do with the plot, maybe had to do with some puritanical sexual judgment type thing. Yeah, no, it was actually inhabited by nuns. And then they built the Champlain Bridge, which was completed in 1962, and that actually kind of drove the nuns out a little bit. And it was built with high-rises, which started being occupied in 1969. Andrew, you said that you were surprised that Nuns Island is a real place, but I think that's one of the great things about Cronenberg, especially at the time, is he was setting his films in Canada, unlike pretty much all the other tax shelter films happening in Canada at the same time. And Paul? For our listeners, maybe even some of our hosts here in this room, can you talk a little bit about what the tax shelter film is? Because that's a huge thing in the Canadian film industry, but it's a weird anomaly almost. Not only is it a big thing, it's a very confusing thing. People have a really hard time grasping it, and it actually took me many years to work it out for myself. But essentially, it involves tax laws. The laws actually came in in the 1960s, but nobody really used them until 1971, 1972. Essentially, what you would do is all the money that you would contribute to a film would be a complete tax write-off. So if you gave $10,000 to a film, you would be able to say on your taxes, this $10,000 is tax-free. So as a result of this, you had a lot of people investing in films, people like dentists, people like, you know, Bay Street lawyers and, and this kind of thing, like people who, who had a little bit of money to spend and were just basically looking for the tax write-off. They didn't care about the end product. From this came a big explosion of films. I think, you know, there was only like something like three or four Canadian films in 1971. And by 1979, we were making like hundreds of films a year. So uh, a lot of them were kind of genre films. Some are good, some are not. But they kind of also got a bit of a stigma because they were unlike things like the National Film Board Productions. They weren't promoting Canada or a sense of Canadianness or sense of national pride or anything like that. They were just films. And a lot of the critics felt that Canadian cinema should promote Canada. And uh, so a lot of critics did not like these films. The tax shelter eventually ended in about 1981, 1982, uh, when they were cut from 100% of a write-off to 50%. That continued to the 80s to 1988, actually, and then they stopped it. And then kind of there's provincial credits from then on. So when we talk about the tax shelter era, we're kind of kind of talking about this golden age between about 1972, 1973 to about 1981. Um, and the other thing that's important at that time period was the establishment of the Canadian Film Development Corporation, which started in 1969. And they were supposed to be kind of like loans. And uh, it never really worked out that way because it was easy to make the films, but it was hard for Canadians to actually get them in front of people. So instead of working like loans, they kind of ended up sort of being like grants because they just couldn't make their money back. So the, the government kept giving them more and more money and they kept making more and more films. Interestingly enough, Shivers was pretty much one of the first Canadian film development corporation funded films to actually make its money back. And it's an interesting time period to talk about because my father, who, again, is an Englishman, was brought over by the NFB, the National Film Board, to kind of spearhead Canadian films. They were bringing in outsiders to help shepherd this way through the film industry, which I think the Canadian government, as was every government, was realizing that this is a really important cultural tool and we have to have a stake in it. We have to have a say in it. So there is a weird period of bringing over different people to make films within the country. So I think that's also why Shivers holds a really special place in our history and our culture, because it's Cronenberg's first feature film. It's, you know, this big emblematic mark. He'd done a couple, you know, short, arty films. And this was, you know, a huge to-do, that this was this weird, fucked-up movie that meant a lot and and did well at the box office. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the most important Canadian horror films, or most significant horror films made at the time, alongside of probably like Black Christmas is the only other one in that kind of early time period that is a significant landmark in Canadian film and played, as we'll probably get into later, played a kind of a pivotal role in making sure that Canada has a horror cinema even today. Without it, I don't, I don't know if, uh, if it would quite be the same as it is now. 
Now, the production history of Shivers is actually partially why I love David Cronenberg so much. We're talking about how Canada had to try so hard to establish a national identity in terms of cinema. And here's David Cronenberg, who's got a script, he's got an idea, he's got a vision, and he's got some connections in New York City and in Hollywood. When he was shopping this script around, he went and visited some friends in New York. He was chummy with Ivan Reitman and with Lauren Michaels, Canadians who are essentially American now because they found their success down south, as so much Canadian talent does. And he went down there, and Roger Corman was really interested in his script, so he was tempted. He was like, I might wind up in Hollywood making this Hollywood horror movie. Holy shit. But when he returned to Canada, he discovered that his film was being funded, and he could make it at home. And so he did. And that this is only part one of, of the epic saga of Shivers. But um, tell us a little bit about Cinepix, who finally picked up Shivers. Well, the history of Cinepix is tied directly into the history of of cinema in Quebec and the kind of changes that were happening at the end of the 60s. Um, Alex mentioned earlier about Trudeau and kind of a swing to liberalism that was happening at the time. This was doubly so in Quebec, where a longtime conservative government had reigned, and in the mid-60s, a liberal government came in. Previously, the conservative government had really supported the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church is a major, major institution in Quebec society. Once the liberals came into power, things began to loosen up significantly over the course of the late 1960s, and it was called the Quiet Revolution. It was a cultural revolution, and it was a moving away from the church. One of the most important things that happened at the time was that the censor board, Quebec censor board, which was actually Catholic-controlled, was given to a government group, so it no longer had a religious element in the censorship of the films at the time. This opened up things considerably for Quebec filmmakers. And John Dunning, the head of Cinepix, or, or half of Cinepix, had actually grown up in the theater and moved into distribution and now saw an opportunity, along with the establishment of the Canadian Film Development Corporation and the incoming tax shelters, to make his own movies. He thought, why am I importing Swedish sex films when I can make a French-Canadian sex film right here for half the price in French and appeal to a local audience. So that's what happened. So Cinepix had actually started this run of what was eventually called maple syrup porn films. And these were films like Valerie and Apreski and Loving and Laughing. Despite their name, they're very innocuous. Yeah, they, they have some nudity, but they have a lot more jokes. And it's just kind of a um, frivolous, carefree kind of movies that they made. Well, and just to give a little bit more context to the maple syrup porn and how important that is in our Canadian film history, when I took a Canadian film study class in my undergrad, we watched maple syrup porn. It was an uncomfortable lecture. <laughs> as, as the films went on, they got a little more daring. I, I think in, in some of them, there's male nudity as well as female nudity. <gasps> yeah. But, but the most important thing about these maple syrup porn films is that essentially they were symbolizing kind of the new creative freedom of Quebec, equating it with this kind of sexual freedom, this kind of sexual coming of age. So a lot of these films were about young women coming of age, losing their virginity. It was supposed to be about Quebec coming of age as well, throwing off the shackles of the conservative government and enjoying a new free hedonistic lifestyle. Now, when Cronenberg actually came to Cinepic back in the very early 70s, 1972, I think, he was actually on tap to make one of these films. That never happened. Cronenberg really wanted to do his script for Shivers and direct it as well. Eventually, Cinepix decided that they would let him do that, especially once the CFDC finally, after many years of rejecting the script, decided to let him do it by providing the money that they needed to go ahead and start filming. At the time, Cinepix had already started to dabble a little bit into horror. They'd already done a film in French called The Possession of Virginia. And the year after, they'd made a film called The Picks in 1973. Now, both of these films were Catholic thrillers. They were about Satanism and, and specifically how this kind of sexual freedom that they explored in the early maple syrup porn films can lead to a kind of opening yourself up to the devil. So they were clearly playing on Quebec's Catholic history and associations that audiences still had at the time. With Shivers, though, things were a lot different. So here's a film that's completely removed from the religious context. And actually, John Dunning told me when I interviewed him many, many years ago that his early film, The Possession of Virginia and the Picts, did not do well, and it taught him a lesson not to mess with anybody's religion. So this one removes all that religious context, but it basically plays like a mirror image of these maple syrup porn films where 
sex isn't equated with freedom. It's almost equated with a kind of enslavement. It's kind of the dark reversal of those happy-go-lucky French-Canadian maple syrup porn films. It's a dark film where sexuality can lead you down some dark paths. So basically, you had Cinepix greenlighting the production with money from the CFDC. Now, this sounds like a bit of a history lesson. What does this have to do with the fucking film already? But well, like this film made a huge splash in Canada simply because of these external governmental factors that we're going to get a little bit later on. I think I also want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the political goings on in Quebec leading up to 1975, in particular, the October crisis, which happened in October 1970. And this is a really scary, scary period in Canadian history. We are very fortunate in that we don't have a lot of mass violence, or we are taught to believe we don't have a lot of mass violence. But this is a very crystallized incident. So uh, you heard us talk about Quebec, you've heard us talk about the language. One of the most important things to remember about this province, and Quebec is a province, Quebec City is the capital, but Montreal is the place you go for fun. And if you're looking for cheap rent as a student, what happened was the FLQ, or the Front Libération du Québec, basically the French separatists who were like, we want to separate, we want our own goddamn country. They detonated over 95 bombs, and in particular in the area of Westmount in in Montreal, which is actually the area I grew up in. It's a very Anglo community. So I, I obviously lived there many years after. But it's important to kind of contextualize that. There's a lot of fear. And during the October crisis, Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father, legalized the War Measures Act, which was the first time in peacetime that, you know, they had tanks on the street. They had armed guards everywhere. And it was a very scary, very, frankly, what I choose to believe, un-Canadian time in Canada. Well, there's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed. But it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to... Uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a at, at any feminine. cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. So just two important incidents to mark this. The October crisis is marked by the kidnapping and murder of Pierre Lapointe, who is the provincial cabinet minister and a British diplomat who was kidnapped but eventually released by the name of James Cross. So it was a scary time. People were going missing and the police were taking a lot of power and people were in support of them taking a lot of power. So it's not a surprise that when Cronenberg went to make a genre film, when he went to make a scary film, he played on the fears of Canadians, which were still very, very at the forefront in our minds, which was to lock down, hide and get into your house. Another important point I want to mention, so just prior to the October crisis, Pierre Trudeau, um, who at this point was then just a justice minister in the Canadian government, said a quote that was actually from Martin O'Malley, who wrote for the national newspaper, The Globe and Mail, which was that there is no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. And he was talking about decriminalizing homosexual acts in the private sphere, like within your own home. And he was standing up for gay rights in a really kind of half-assed way, but in a good way in 1968. So there is a weird sense of the government still wanting to be in your homes, but having to be in your homes to be safe. So the government is always aware of you and controlling you. Now that was a huge mic drop in Canadian politics. So with this backdrop established, we come to Shivers. And Shivers, the original working title of the film was Orgy of the Blood Parasites. And the next working title was The Parasite Murders before it became Shivers. It was known as Frisson in French, which is French for Shivers. But in the U.S., it was released as They Came From Within. On this island, in this building, through this door, down this hallway lies the most frightening experience of your life. Prepare yourself for they came from within. I actually have a preference for they came from within because that actually feels a bit more what the film is about, that it's an interior longing and that these parasites are meant to unleash our humanistic, animalistic instincts and the fact that we are all locked in and we're all shutting ourselves in these high-rises behind our locked doors and that these parasites come along and force us to interact with people. I think that's actually a much more evocative title than Shivers. 
That's right. I thought that was one of the big themes to emerge from this film is that it constructs the Starliner as this safety in isolation type place. You've got this island that's all to yourself and it's got everything you need and you're going to be safe here. So to take a space like this and make it the site for a parasite that, like Alex said, it, it unleashes something within insofar as it's an alien force that enters you. It's unleashing something that's natural and primal and carnal. I thought that was really interesting juxtaposition. Well, one of the comments that I've heard about the film is how influenced Cronenberg was by J.G. Ballard, the author, and specifically this film has a lot of parallels with his novel High Rise, which I believe was just made into a movie very recently. I think Ben Wheatley, his adaptation premiered at TIFF in uh, 2015. That book is more about class, and there's a little bit of that in, in Shivers, I find, but it's not really kind of the dominant thing. But it does definitely have that aspect. You know, it's kind of the uh, middle-class civility devolves into just complete anarchy. Yeah, one of the things I've heard most about this film, Shivers, is that it's so subversive. And to me, it's incredibly subversive just as a film, just in the context of how we discuss a film. Because in a mainstream film, we look for the hero and the heroine to fall in love. And that love is pure and it's good and it's going to save the whole goddamn world. In this one, the protagonists, the Dr. St. Luke and Nurse Forsythe, they're posited as the true lovers in this story so that when they actually do kiss when they get to that emotional moment of kissing, it's undercut with this real sense of sinisterness. And their kiss is actually the passing of a parasite, but it's shot in this beautiful pool. And it's one of the most well-lit scenes in the film. It actually reminded me a lot of the end of Rocky Horror Picture Show, when they're all in the pool and like making out. But this was, there was something much deeper underneath and deeper in the sense of a literal parasite crawling through them. So speaking of parasites, I just mentioned how the word parasite was initially thrown around in the film's title and eventually was omitted in both the Canadian, the Canadian French, and the American title. And the idea of calling these things parasites is a little bit problematic to me. Every time I watch the film, I'm like, but they're not parasites, though. A parasite is something that lives within its host and benefits itself. It doesn't benefit the host at all. And yet here we are talking about this dick-shaped turd that infects you and effectively unleashes your primal urges. And obviously it's not benefiting its host per se, but it's also not really hurting it. Are these things parasites? Cronenberg himself revels in this. Somebody else brought it up to him before. And, and his answer to that was that it's his conceit that perhaps these things that we fear will destroy our bodies will actually transform them into something new and maybe even something better. And this is a conceit that I feel like he explores further when we get into Videodrome with regard to people's fascination with video and then further into Existence when we get into virtual reality. Crash, he's talking about paraphilia. It's probably the most Cronenbergian element of the film, apart from the dick-shaped turds. One of Cronenberg's famous quotes about the film is that, I identify with the virus. I think the film has some really interesting ideas about disease. And I think, you know, it's obvious uh, watching the film that it's not just kind of like, oh, it's a disease and it's killing people. He's really thought about this. He's thought about what it means to have a disease, what diseases do. The idea that where humans are getting sick, diseases are actually doing their job. So for a virus, a person getting sick is a triumph. For us, it's terrible. I hear what you're saying, and I feel like I've said in this podcast so many times before that I don't give a fuck what the director wanted, what the writer was trying to convey, what the actors were thinking. I don't care. For me, it's all about audience reception, but I actually kind of throw that out the window when it comes to Cronenberg, simply because he has thought all of this stuff out. And in every interview I've ever seen with him, he gives the best well-thought-out answers, and part of it comes from his background. He was educated briefly as a scientist, so his views on the biopolitics that appear in his films are very well-developed from a scientist's perspective. Yeah, it's, it's interesting the way that the disease is kind of treated in the film, um, and I'm specifically thinking of the way that Nick, with the uh, parasites in his belly, is you know talking to his belly and nurturing them and like they're his little pets or something like that. Good friends. 
But it's also interesting the way that the infected residents of Starliner change when they get infected. Essentially, when we're introduced to a lot of these people, they're, they're kind of isolated in their own apartments. They're living their own lives. They're not very friendly or not particularly overly friendly with each other. But of course, once they're infected, they're in the hallways um, naked. You know, I, I find Cronenberg's comment that he sympathizes with the virus more than the humans. I don't quite buy it. I, I don't think he's being fully truthful there because I don't think the disease is a positive thing in the, in the end. But you can definitely see that in some ways it is not totally a negative thing for these people. They're now interacting with each other. They're not isolated. They don't necessarily have the same kind of moral hang-ups that they appeared to have at the beginning of the film. Of course, I think it goes to an extreme here in this case that you can't really sympathize with these people. But ultimately, the disease does change them, evolve them in some kind of a, a way that's maybe not positive, maybe not negative, but different than how they started in the film. Well, one thing I'd like to add to that thought is the sexual politics going on in the film. We know from the very onset that there's a dirty old man who has been banging his students since she was 12 years old. She's like 19 now or whatever, and she's been promiscuous within the building. She's sleeping with a married man. Nick Tudor is having an affair with her, and it's also kind of implied that Barbara Steele's character might have had a bisexual affair with her. It's not really clear how she contracted the parasite, but when it's revealed that she has bisexual proclivities, it's kind of implied. So I feel like the film almost suggests that, you know what, sex is going on everywhere behind closed doors. Nobody talks about it. It's happening, but it's not really happening until this parasite goes down, and then it's really happening everywhere. And that seems to change everything, even though it was always happening. And I think as the climax him of the film builds and you know you have St. Luke running through the halls you have Nurse Foresight running through as well and they're you know trying to find a way out all of these things going on and you know they're stumbling into these apartments and it's like old people families like really messed up stuff and in those moments watching this film it's like wow we really buy into these social constructs that we have you know obviously there's a kind of hint of incest going on in one scene have you met my daughter, Erica? She's a beautiful girl. Come here, Erica. I think you'd really like my daughter, Erica. <laughs> and then as well, just with the, you know, old Quebecois couple who are at first very scared but loving, and then they are like randy as fuck. It's a very shocking thing. And I'm a person, and I think we all are, if you're listening to this podcast, we've seen a lot of shocking shit in the movies that we choose to watch. And those were moments that really grabbed me and, and shocked me, frankly. And they're taboos that movies even today don't really touch. We don't really touch upon elderly sexuality and incest. For me, what Cronenberg is doing here is kind of an update of, of what they used to do back in the 1930s and 40s with mad scientist films. And, and I think at its heart, Shivers is a mad scientist film, even though the scientist dies in the first three or four minutes. But the havoc that he leaves behind consumes everything else. You know, a lot of these films back in the 30s and 40s kind of played with the line between human and beast. What separates us from the beast? Films like The Wolfman and uh, Island of Lost Souls. And, you know, at the time, evolution was a lot more controversial. And the idea, I think, it's, it's more of an intellectual horror than a kind of a visceral horror. But this idea that, you know, what separates me from the ape who's going to kill someone? Am I really related to this ape? It can be a scary idea if you don't believe in it or you have trouble believing in it. I think Cronenberg is effectively updating this for the 70s. To me, the, the people in the film are basically behaving like germs. They're behaving like microbes. They don't have any sense of morality or family or they have no hang-ups. All they do is reproduce. They don't care. There's nothing that passes through a germ's mind. Um, and I think that's basically what, what's going on in this film is that the people are basically behaving like germs. They're just infecting each other. They don't care who is your daughter. It's your sister. It, it's a little girl. It doesn't matter. And and I think that's what Cronenberg is essentially trying to, to do with his film. And yeah, absolutely. It is still shocking today to see a lot of those scenes because they, they do um, cross taboos. But for a germ, that's just, you know, normal, whatever. I, every microbe that passes by, you know, I jump on, right? Hey, girl. Hashtag not every microbe. <laughs>
one of the keys to the film, I think, is that speech that Nurse Forsyth gives about three quarters of the way through about the dream that she has about where she's making love to the strange man. Roger, I had a very disturbing dream last night. In this dream, I found myself making love to a strange man. Only I'm having trouble, you see, because he's old and dying. And he smells bad, and I find him repulsive. But then he tells me that everything is erotic, that everything is sexual. You know what I mean? He tells me that even old flesh is erotic flesh, that disease is the love of two alien kinds of creatures for each other, that even dying is an act of eroticism. That talking is sexual. That breathing is sexual. That even to physically exist is sexual. And I believe him. Her point here that the disease is the kind of love of two alien kinds of creatures for each other and that dying is an act of eroticism and everything is erotic is kind of, I think, the linchpin of, of the whole film, this idea that these bacteria are essentially reproducing and having sex. And for them, is, is it erotic for germs to have sex? We don't know, but I, I think the way she's describing it, or at least to Cronenberg, yes, it is. Everything is sexual, as he says. So, you know, I think that kind of helps really tie together the whole film, that, that scene. It's a very um, interesting and memorable speech that she gives. It is an interesting quote because we tend to think of sex as something so glamorous and eroticized and such an emotional thing, but there's a very biological imperative to sex. I forget where I saw it, but I saw a hilarious quote where it's like, science is a lot like sex. There are practical reasons for it, but nine times out of ten, that's not why we do it. <laughs> I kept thinking about that when I was watching this film. Now, in my research, I listened to a clip of David Cronenberg saying that Shivers was inspired by a dream he had of a man waking up beside a woman and seeing a spider crawl out of her mouth. And he, he didn't want to incorporate this kind of imagery into Shivers simply because spiders have those spindly little legs. It would have been really hard to render. He barely got away with his dick-shaped turds. But I think spiders are such an interesting metaphor for sexuality because it posits this predator that traps its prey. And if you think of black widows who rip the male's head off after the female's impregnated because, hey, I don't need you anymore. We're done. I'm going to do this now. And I felt like that metaphor was really craftily used in a film called Enemy by Denis Villeneuve, where these spiders represent the protagonist's view and fear of women. And I have to admit that watching this film, I was looking for gender politics. We're a feminist podcast, so I was looking for them. But I feel like Cronenberg does not discriminate. There's none of this men are sexual creatures and women are gatekeepers of their sexuality and they have to keep it under wraps, which, as we've mentioned in this podcast before, is complete bullshit. It's this double standard of women being viewed as emotional and reckless and passionate and closer to nature, and yet our sexuality is so restrained. I feel like there isn't a trace of this in Shivers. Well, we should watch The Brood because <laughs> that's, that's, I think, where most of that comes in. But, I mean, to me, you know, if, if we're really talking about the starline of residents as germs, as kind of like non-gender specific microbes, then no, there's no real gender politics. There's no gender politics. Happening. And I think, you know, there's obviously there's both gay and lesbian relationships in the film, but ultimately I don't think it matters. It's just kind of everything is up for grabs in, in the film, which is kind of as everything devolves into chaos, that's what really makes it scary. Everything that's normal from heterosexual relationships to homosexual relationship is portrayed as completely day to day in this film. And even the taboo stuff, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, the incest, the old people stuff, that's again, that's completely normal. It's just, you know, you take it with the film if you're on board for it. 
Actually, one of the most interesting scenes for me was the pseudo-sex scene between Nicholas and Janine Tudor. So obviously Nicholas has got the stuff growing in his stomach. He's all into it. He, you know, keeps kind of saying to Janine, his wife, like, we must make love. Make love to me, Janine. You're my wife. And he's being very forceful, and she's getting increasingly scared. And she kind of pulls herself away from him, saying, Make love I, I want to be able to see us when we make love. I want to. I want to put my contacts in. Okay, is that okay, Nick? I'm gonna go in the bathroom and put my contacts in. It's so fucked up. But to them, it's normal. Domestic sexuality. It's a terrifying thing. Now, another element of the film I wanted to bring up is, I mean, Canada, just like the U.S. Sex ed isn't taught to any satisfactory degree in our schools. I mean, I've said in the podcast a million times that I was in the Catholic school system, so I'm sure my sex education was worse than most. But basically the idea over here, as in many places, is that knowing about sex will encourage kids to have it and VD will spread, unwanted pregnancies, etc. So I almost feel like what happened at the Starliner... It's almost as if Shivers is positing the world that everyone is afraid of, that if everyone knows about sex, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be just like the Starliner. Whereas the Starliner is kind of meant to be this bastion of civility. It is a place where you can go and you can interact, but you can also have every single amenity you want. And it's, you know, you choose how much you want to interact with people. I mean, you know, I love the little scene with the two old biddies walking along outside and then one of the turds falls on them and and they think it's a bird and they just kind of keep walking away. Poor birdie. Oh, poor birdie. Why? They're always crashing into tall buildings. The windows fool them, you know. Oh, come along, Ollie. It's such a shame. But it is, and again, like, just to say, for me, it, it was very interesting talking to my father this last week, and he was like, no, that's what it was like. It was civil, and we all just went there, and then we commuted to work, and everything was fine. It got a little scary in the medical sense occasionally, but otherwise, it was a great place to live. It was a very safe place to be. Even though it's obviously a horror film, I, I think one of the things that stands out for me in this movie is that Cronenberg obviously has a bit of a sense of humor about this as well. It's not strictly just serious discussion of, of disease and, and sexual morality. There's a lot of humor. I, that early slideshow that, that comes up where it's positing Starliner is kind of a paradise, a, a 70s yuppie paradise. is very satirical and darkly funny. Yes, it's true. Day-to-day living becomes a luxury cruise when you've made your home at Starliner Tower Apartments. But my absolute favorite character in the film, of many great characters, but I love Dr. Linsky in this movie um, with his big glasses and sitting there eating pickles and, uh, you know, making phone calls and just delivering the uh, background that you need to progress with the film. But he's just got such a great interesting kind of quirky character and I love the fact that Cronenberg is filming him while you know talking about these parasites and diseases while there's kind of aquariums with weird you know jellyfish kind of shaped things floating at the same time it just kind of gives the film a bit of a funny dark edge to it that that especially in Canadian film at the time a Canadian horror film at the time wasn't really there this is a, almost a wholly unique approach to to horror at the time I also loved Linsky, and I have to say, I think his death was the only one that I really felt in my gut when you saw him go down. He was so playful. He was comic relief, like you said, with the pickle nonsense. He had a very childlike quality, and so his death, he was the only one that I was like, no, not him. Well, I think he also has a very interesting quote um, in the film, which is another another um, important piece of dialogue when he's talking about Dr. Hubbs' view of civilization and, and why he kind of created this kind of aphrodisiac venereal disease thing that's going to supposedly turn the world into a paradise. But he says that Hobbes believed that humanity has too much brains and not enough guts. And I really feel like this is a bit of a key to the film as well in Cronenberg's kind of approach. Now, Cronenberg, as you mentioned earlier, had kind of a two or three... Um, or four, I guess, short films that he'd made. And specifically, he had made a couple at uh, University of Toronto, Crimes of the Future and Stereo. 
And although these are kind of horror films, they are extremely intellectual films. Um, there's very little visceral horror about what goes on. They're mostly shot silently. They mostly play along with shots of architecture. The horror is kind of all in the dialogue and done intellectually. This is one of the first films where he actually really had a lot of special effects, actual creatures. His past films had too much brains, and this is his attempt to make up for the guts and really include that. So for the film, he, he had a guy named Joe Blasco do the, um, do the little shit-colored dicks that you Dick like so much. Dick-shaped turds. Dick-shaped turds that you love so much. Now, Blasco had, he had done a, a lot of makeup on TV. You know, he'd been working in L.A. He was an American. He'd, uh, he had basically come up to, uh, to work with Cinepix on Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS and kind of stuck around, and Cronenberg did use him for Shivers, and he also used him for Rabbit as well. And I will just say this, listeners, the irony of talking about intellect over guts is not lost on the faculty of horror, but I would say it's very appropriate considering that Cronenberg himself is able to intellectualize this film. Yeah, I think the film, it's definitely a combination. In Shivers, Cronenberg's kind of able to augment the intellectual side with the guts that he wants to. So both both parts are there and they kind of work equally. And, and I guess that's one of the things that I like best about the film. It, it's a smart film, but it also delivers on the gut-wrenching horror stuff that you want from a Cronenberg film. Right, but this is before a Cronenberg film was a Cronenberg film. This was his first feature after a series of shorts, and then, of course, he went on to do tons of amazing movies and get huge Canadian props. He was also a pretty good actor. Clive Barker fans might remember that he played the lead antagonist in Nightbreed, and he was really awesome. I've cleaned up a lot of breeders. Families like cesspools. Filth making filth making filth. And, and I did it over and over and over again. But it was all leading me here. I was born to destroy Boom and the breed together. You're crazy. No, I'm death. Plain and simple. He was perfect for the role, just cerebral enough, just sinister enough. He's got a really great grasp of what makes a good antagonist. And I think he's a filmmaker that has remained relevant and remained shocking. Some people and some horror fans deride him for, quote-unquote, leaving the genre, and they say, you know, uh, The Fly or Dead Ringers. Um, films like those were his last, and he hasn't made a horror film in 25 years. But he makes very visceral films. And I think if you've seen Crash, if you've seen Eastern Promises, if you've seen Maps to the Stars, they are horrific satires of our contemporary life. And I actually think that's what Cronenberg does best, is these subversive satires that question our values and refocus our views. And he's such an exciting filmmaker, and he makes me very proud to be Canadian. Well, he is now, but it wasn't always the case. After Shivers came out, it met with tremendous controversy to the point that it almost ended Cronenberg's career before it ever really began. Yeah, in particular, there was a review of the film. It wasn't even really a review. It was an article that came out in the, in the wake of Shivers called You Should Know How Bad This Film Is, You Paid For It. And it was written by a well-known cultural critic in Canada named Robert Fulford for Saturday Night Magazine. He really, really did not like this film. He thought it was basically pornography. And he was taking issue with the fact that the Canadian Film Development Corporation had funded Cronenberg. So his issue was that taxpayers are paying for a Canadian cinema. Why are we funding movies that are horror movies or genre movies? We should be funding movies that we're proud of, art house cinema and smart films like that. Especially at the time, Shivers was not appreciated for the intellectual approach that Cronenberg brought to it. Now, this is a very famous article. It's probably one of the most important pieces of Canadian film criticism that happened, especially in the 1970s. As a result, Cronenberg said that he was basically almost kicked out of his apartment because his landlady read the article and assumed he was some kind of crazy pervert. But most importantly, it kicked off a big discussion in Canada's government and in our House of Commons about whether horror film belonged in Canada. Should Canada make horror films with taxpayer money? Now, Cinepix actually got behind Cronenberg and made a, a pamphlet that they distributed to all the Canadian politicians called Do Horror Films Have a Place in Canada? And obviously... 
Hoare does have a place in Canada, and Cronenberg was eventually vindicated. A lot of critics eventually rallied behind the film because of the opposition to it, which is kind of funny to me because, you know, knowing the history of Canadian film and seeing other reviews of horror films at the time, they're not very flattering. Um, as I mentioned much earlier, there was a predisposition not to like these tax shelter films, not to like genre films, to assume that it was kind of a waste of money. I think the critical attack on Cronenberg really had people rallying behind the film, and then yet a year later were still dismissing horror films. But I think that the point was that these critics felt strongly about was that filmmakers should be able to make whatever they want, if they want to, no matter if the end product is good or bad. Ultimately, Cronenberg had the last laugh. I mean, he continued to make Rabbit with Cinepix, and then he moved on to a new production company and made The Brood and Videodrome and The Fly. So I, I think ultimately, yeah, Cronenberg proved Horror does have a place in Canada, which really made Shivers kind of a flashpoint for what happened in the next 10 years in Canadian horror. And he stayed in Canada. It's almost like he forgave us. He had every opportunity to go to Hollywood and make it big. And you would think that after being lynched by your own country for wasting that country's taxpayer dollars, he'd be like, fuck you. You guys clearly aren't ready for my Cronenberginess. He could have made Top Gun. The list of yeah. things that he was offered to make in Hollywood is absurd. It's everything from Top Gun to Interview with a Vampire to Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. I mean, a myriad of films starting in the 80s. He could have left so easily, and he kept choosing not to, and he kept choosing to make art house films largely in Ontario, you know, a film like Spider. He's been largely vocal in saying, this was a film no one got paid for. We just felt it deserved to be told. And uh, it just builds my respect for him so much more to the point where, you know, we're very lucky in Toronto and we have the Toronto International Film Festival here, or TIFF, and they have year-round offices and year-round screenings and year-round exhibitions. And about two years ago, they did David Cronenberg Evolution. Now, I was lucky enough to go and see that exhibit, and there is a portion where you could actually pull out these little wooden drawers, and you could see audience critiques of Shivers. And I remember just sitting there and reading them, and they were like, I hate this film. This is the worst thing ever. This is a disgrace to Canadians. And I'm like, I'm sitting in one of the biggest Canadian institutions in TIFF, reading about what a disgrace David Cronenberg is. And it just, it made me love horror films, genre films that much more because it really crystallized how much auteurs and, and especially genre auteurs have to persevere constantly. It's so goddamn oppressive. Also, side note, I was at TIFF one time, ran into David Cronenberg. He asked me where the washroom was. I pointed him to it. He said, thank you so much, miss. I almost hugged him. So if you enjoyed this episode, if you're intrigued about all our talk about Cinepix and the CFDC, Rumorg actually published an installment of the Rumorg Library series. Volume 4 is called Horrorwood North. And it was written by James Burrell, and it is a very thorough look at Canada's history in horror and its continuing history in horror. This is a snapshot of the 70s, but a lot more came after that. So we are going to give away two copies of this book. They're up for grabs, and all you need to do is you need to get on Twitter. You need to follow us at Faculty of Horror, and you need to tweet us your favorite Canadian horror film and include the hashtag Horrorwood. If you do so, you are entered to win one of two books, and we'll send those out to you. So try to think of your favorite Canadian horror movie. That contest is going to be up until December 1st. Paul, you've kind of co-birthed in the spirit of Cronenberg, a really amazing book called Satanic Panic as part of the Spectacular Optical Label. And you did that with Kayla Janice. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah, this is a book that I worked on for about a year. And it's about the Satanic Panic during the 1980s, but specifically how that kind of came out in pop culture. So it, we talk about the Satanic influence in like music videos and board games, paperback novels, all that kind of stuff throughout the 1980s. It's got about 20 different uh, contributors, and yeah, we're, we're really proud of it. And not only do Andrew and I have the good luck to have gotten a copy of the book and know that it is brilliant, it is super smart, it's also gorgeous. And we've got one copy of that to give away. Thank you so much, Paul and Kayla, for that. All you have to do to enter for the Satanic Panic book is go on Twitter, 
Use hashtag Satanic Panic. Tell us what your favorite movie about Satan is. And we will come find you. And that contest is also open to December 1st. We will have those rules and hashtags in the episode description if you didn't quite catch those. So feel free to go to there. Check it out. And Paul... Thank you so much for being here. Andrea and I have talked about having you on this podcast for so long, and we are very honored and thrilled that you could be here. Uh, so to all the listeners who just fell in love with you, how do they follow you? How do they uh, get to keep on what's the what's up? Well, as we mentioned, uh, I do a website called Connexploitation.com, and uh, I'm on Facebook and, and Twitter under Connexploitation. So, so that's the best place to uh, find information about Canadian films. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter at Paul Corp. Well, thankfully, we're going to be kicking Paul out of the Rue Morgue vault for the next episode, only because we are getting scary and we are getting big. It is Christmas. It is our three-year anniversary. Andrea and I are officially podcast co-married, and it's, it's going to be a big one. And for the biggest time of year, we're going to talk about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. That's right. Toronto has some pretty bitter winters, so we're anticipating being snowed in and feeling our seasonal affective disorder setting in on us. So we are going to get into it, and that's coming at you next month. So be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss that. Follow us on Facebook and on Twitter so that you're aware when we drop our next episode. And if you like what you hear, please consider writing a review of the podcast on whatever country you're in. It really helps us out. Algorithms iTunes will own them eventually. So thank you for listening. And until next time, office hours are closed. <laughs> <laughs>